This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there, everybody. And welcome to another episode of the Bird Hugger Podcast. We've got a very interesting show for you today. Today we'll be speaking with Stephanie Ellis, the Executive Director of Wild Care on Cape Cod. She's going to tell us all about her adventures hatching osprey eggs and raising and re-nesting the chicks. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. Okay, and now I'd like to welcome Stephanie Ellis to the show. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. It's very exciting to have you on the show. I have to say, I first learned about you when I attended the Canadian Wildlife Rehabilitators Conference, and I saw the talk you gave on re-nesting osprey chicks, and I was just blown away. Oh my goodness, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, I was just, it was mind-boggling to see all the work that you do and how you get those chicks back into a, a safe nest with their parents. So I thought I would just ask you today about how you go through that. But before we begin that, could you please tell our listening audience a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Sure. So my name is Stephanie, and I'm the director of Wild Care, which is a wildlife rehabilitation hospital located in Massachusetts. We're on Cape Cod. And so we treat native wild birds and small mammals, reptiles, amphibians, And our goal is rehabilitation and release, but we also do a ton of public outreach and education, teaching people how to coexist with the wildlife in their backyard. Now, how did you become interested in ospreys in particular? Oh my goodness. Well, they're definitely beautiful. And on Cape Cod, they're a true conservation success story. And so we have a large population here. I feel like they've sort of become our Cape Cod icon So you see them everywhere during the summer months, and they're just absolutely beautiful. Yeah, they're a lot of fun to watch. They really are. They're so animated, and they are a success story here. So I feel proud every time I see one. And they put their nest in some pretty wild places. (laughs) That's for sure. Which is probably why they get into trouble sometimes. Yes, exactly. Here, they've really taken to nesting on utility poles, in particular, the poles that have the double cross arm. That's a perfect location for them to build their nests. Now, a lot of people call them fish hawks. Could you maybe go into the natural history of the osprey and explain to our listeners just how they operate out there? Sure. So they are a fish-eating bird, and they're a raptor, so they're a predator. They have binocular vision with the two eyes set 
close together in on the front of the face. So they're these incredibly adept at hunting fish out of water. And so you see them everywhere here. Being on Cape Cod, we're surrounded by water. So we see them on the kettle ponds on Cape Cod Bay, on the Atlantic Ocean and Nantucket Sound. And they're here for several months. They're migratory. They go to South America and then they're back typically end of April and start nesting and then leave in September. So it feels like a short window, but you see them everywhere during those spring and summer months. So they go where the fish are. They go where the fish are. And their nest, if you look at their nest, they want a commanding view. They want to see the water and be able to see all around them. Now, do they build nests when they go south for the winter? They don't build nests when they go south. I believe they roost in trees, which is their more natural environment. And then when they come here, immediately they start a mission of going back to either their nesting platforms or their nesting trees or starting to find locations to breed and set up a nest. They have incredible nest site fidelity, so they will go back to the same nest site year after year after year. Okay, so they do demonstrate nest fidelity. I I was wondering about that. They do. It's really incredible to see. There are some places where we've had birds returning for over 10 years, and these nests can get quite large and quite heavy, They have to constantly work on repairing them. And sometimes, unfortunately, some of the materials fall through. Now, I read an article that said an osprey nest can grow to 2,000 pounds in weight. Oh, my goodness. I believe that. (laughs) (laughs) And I also read that some very unique items can be found in these nests, like cell phones, sneakers, T-shirts. I guess they like to collect items that they find along the edge of the water. That's so interesting. I've not heard of those items in a nest, but I believe it. They will pick up trash. And so unfortunately, because of that, we do get osprey that have become entangled in fishing gear and ropes and even plastic bags. So they do have an eye for decorating their nest with these types of man-made materials. They seem to like uh, sparkly silver things like mylar balloons that have deflated and landed on the ground. I wonder if it's because a fish's scales are silver and shiny. Yes, that makes perfect sense. And it is unfortunate. I remember the fire department for one of the towns on Cape Cod responded to chicks that were tied to the nest by a mylar balloon. That was just this past summer. So I wish they didn't add those things to their nest, but unfortunately they're attracted to them and they're all over the environment. And they do nest in the darndest places. I mean, my husband and I drove through Everglades City, which is in the Everglades not too long ago, and there was an enormous osprey nest sitting on top of an electric transformer. Oh, goodness. Oh, yes. Yeah. And the locals had named the female Sparky. Oh, no. (laughs) She somehow managed to raise young year after year in that spot with no fatalities, which I think is pretty amazing. Yes, I'm thrilled to hear that. We actually work with Eversource, our local utility company, to try to mitigate osprey and power line, osprey and human conflict, because they do favor nesting on these utility poles and can cause widespread power outages, but also electrocute themselves in some cases. And so we work with Eversource to try to find You look at problem areas and what kind of deterrence can they place there to prevent these birds from causing harm to themselves or 
causing power outages. Right. So tell me now, at what age is an osprey ready to find a mate and start a nest? So typically they are usually, I believe, within two to four years old before they actually start breeding. And it's such an amazing thing to look at their development because these chicks, they're in the nest for several months and then they have to learn how to hunt. And then for our population of osprey, then they have to migrate. They typically will head south with the father who has taught uh, the young birds how to hunt. And then they have to survive. And just imagine, you know, hunting fish for a living, then having to travel to South America for many of them. It's quite a lifestyle. And so it takes them a while to learn how to hunt effectively. And then they will come back to their natal nest area where they hatched and have to establish a territory and a nest and breed. So it does take a period, you know, there's a few years of maturity there before they're ready to breed. And it's pretty rough going, as you said. What percentage of osprey first years make it back to New England on average? Goodness, you know, I'm not sure, but I think that I did read that over 70% will not survive their first year. Uh, Don't quote on that, but I think it's pretty high mortality. Yeah, that's what I've read too. In general, raptors, 70 to 80% yeah, it's quite, don't make it's, it to their second year, unfortunately. Yeah. So tell me, how did you get started working with osprey chicks? So it's an incredible thing. We receive osprey every year, typically young osprey that are either starving or their nest blew down, or they may have been injured. And so my staff work with these animals and we rehabilitate them and get them back out into the wild. And so we have worked with chicks, but we never worked with eggs and extremely young chicks until last summer. And what happened was on Cape Cod, we have a lot of second homeowners who are not here during the winter months. And then they may return in the spring to find an osprey nest on their roof. And so it was a case of in the town of Falmouth and Centerville, People found osprey nests on their roof, and the Migratory Bird Treaty Act states that nests cannot be removed of migratory species once they have eggs or chicks in them. So what happens is the homeowners have to contact, they usually contact a pest control agent who contacts USDA, and then USDA comes out and has to remove that nest. If there are eggs in the nest, they can remove the eggs and place them in other nests. If there are chicks in the nest, that nest has to be moved onto the same property. And so what happened was USDA called me last summer and and said, we have these three eggs from a, a roof in Centerville. Will you hatch them for us? And I said, oh my goodness, I would certainly love to try. And I got permission from Mass Wildlife to hatch and rear the chicks and then place them into wild foster nests which was incredible. So these were chicks from the town of Falmouth. And then little did I know, (laughs) in a few more days, I would end up getting two more eggs from another roof nest in Centerville. So yeah, it's in quite the process. (laughs) That's a lot of work. (laughs) Yeah, it was an unbelievable amount of work. It was two weeks of my life. I would do it again in a heartbeat and perhaps do things a little differently, but I all, we learned so much from this experience. So you actually incubated osprey eggs. 
I did. I did. Wow. <laughs> yes. And I hadn't done that before. I specialize in eggs, but I had never hatched raptor eggs. So I feel really fortunate. I had a woman who used to be the avian biologist for the Toledo Zoo. Her name is Susie Kosielke. And she was on my speed dial. I was texting her throughout the day. Is the humidity correct? Am I turning them enough? And she was incredibly helpful and put my mind at ease. And the first set of eggs, the three chicks from Falmouth, they all hatched. Unfortunately, the first one that hatched was not a viable chick. It was unwell. And so it perished that first day. But the other chicks fortunately thrived. And then the second nest that I got of two eggs, those also hatched and thrived. Wow. It's just boggling my mind thinking of how many hours per day you would have to put in to keep newly hatched chicks alive and thriving. Oh, my goodness. Catherine, I was a nervous wreck. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. Because so the chicks needed to eat three to four times a day. And the food needs to be fresh. And then you need to make sure that you're providing all the essential nutrition. So vitamins and minerals were added. So what my day looked like was in the morning, I would weigh the chicks and then I would measure out their food because they had to be provided a certain percentage of body weight of food every day. So most people are thinking, oh, and you gave them fish. Well, fish is actually, it degrades very quickly in terms of nutrition. So You can't really feed osprey chicks fish after it's 24 hours old. So the only fish that I provided to them was fresh, 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 fresh caught right out of the water. So what I had to provide was actually ground up mice and rats and quails. And these are animals that are purchased frozen for food. And so every morning, you know, I'm weighing out the food. I'm cutting up these little pieces, feed the chicks, clean them. And then do it all over again in in four hours. And so, like I said, I would do it again in a minute, but I didn't know what the outcome was going to be because I didn't have the experience. And so I literally fret about everything. (laughs) I could see where you would. I mean, because not, not only are you feeding them, you're measuring their core body temperature to make sure they're warm enough because they can't digest food unless their body's a certain temperature. And then are they hydrated enough? So you're measuring hydration levels. It's one of those specialties within rehabilitation of birds where you cannot make a single mistake. Yes. It has to be exacting. Everything has to be perfectly executed time-wise, measurement-wise, or things can go left very quickly. Yes, so very true. So I was paying attention to their vocalizations and then also behavioral markers. So I knew from some people I was consulting with that by age 10 days old, that's when the imprinting process starts, where birds like raptors will start really habituating to people. And so I knew it was sort of a race against time for me, you know, that I need to be able to find foster parents for these chicks and get them into a nest by 10 days of age. And so what I started doing also was I have a stuffed osprey, like a plush osprey, and I would put it in front of their incubator so that when they would pop their heads up and be begging, they would see this plush osprey and not see me. 
So there were all these things. It was truly, truly incredible. And for the listeners, those first 10 days, the reason why it's considered a somewhat safe zone to prevent imprinting is their eyes are closed when they first hatch, but then their eyes slowly open and their vision improves. And by day 10, their vision is sharp enough to know who's in front of them. Exactly. Thank you for pointing that out. And they really did change in terms of how alert they were. At first, their eyes were a little bit cloudy and they just seemed like little bobbleheads. And then they became much more alert and started to become aggressive towards one another, which is something that most people don't get to see up close because um, people don't have the benefit of seeing into an osprey nest. But these birds exhibited normal territorial behavior in the wild. Unfortunately, osprey chicks will commit fratricide, which is they will peck to death their sibling. And it's very stressful, unfortunately stressful, but a natural occurrence in osprey populations. Right. It's sort of like watching three kids sitting in front of a TV and there's only one candy bar they have to split between them. Exactly. Exactly. It can get really violent really fast. Exactly. So (laughs) I... Yeah, I got to witness this and it was hard for me to watch, but I knew that it was appropriate behaviors. Right. Now, what happened after the first 10 days? Is that the crucial point where you had to get them back in the nest? Yes. So what happened was I started looking pretty quickly. I was told that by day five, I could put them into a wild nest, but it's it's ideal. You know, the stronger, the better. and so. I had worked with a volunteer who was helping to scout nests so that we could find an appropriate family for this first group of chicks. And the tough part about osprey that you all are aware of is that they like to nest high. And so you don't typically see the chicks until they're old enough that you can see their heads peering over the nest. So what we had to do is use drones and very carefully, I might add, and also utilizing local and government guidelines and with permission from Mass Wildlife, we used drones to look into some nests to see if we could find nests that had chicks that were similar in age. So this process alone was stressful because our goal, of course, was we do not want to disturb nesting osprey. And we didn't, fortunately. We were able to do this really well. But then checking out nests and trying to find appropriate fits It takes a lot of time. So now the person helping you was able to find several nests that were seemed like good candidates for putting the osprey chicks in the nest. So how did you make your final decision on on where these chicks would go? Sure. So for the first two chicks, we found a nest, believe it or not, at a go-kart area. There's this wonderful, it's called Bud's Go-Karts. And There's been an osprey that nests in the middle of the go-kart track for the last five years, (laughs) uh, seemingly undisturbed by all this activity all summer. And so that was an accessible nest. Uh, The owners were thrilled for us to introduce our chicks. And what worked out well also is that they would frequently drone the nest themselves just to see the activity. So with the help of the fire department, we placed the chicks into that nest And then I was able to see images of those chicks from a drone for several weeks following. That is amazing. I know. Isn't that incredible? (laughs) It really is. So you were able to put two chicks in that nest. 
Yes. And that's because that pair of Osprey, they had two chicks. We didn't want to overburden, you know, typically in an Osprey nest, they will have one to four chicks, but typically only two will survive. And I certainly didn't want to interfere with their chicks, but I also wanted the best possibility of survival for all. So we decided to go ahead. These were experienced parents and we decided to go ahead with that. So we put the two chicks into the go-kart nest. Now, I imagine you were observing the parents. How quickly did they take to the new little ones? Oh, my goodness. So incredible to watch. The female never went away. She was in a nearby tree. And within eight minutes of us leaving the nest, she was back on. And then I have to just share that we had this freak storm the next night, which was unexpected. And I was so worried. I thought, my God, we had this torrential rain that was unexpected. And from a drone image, we could see my two chicks being fed like up front and center after that storm. So I was just, I was relieved. (laughs) Wow. Yes. And sort of felt like playing God here, but truly just trying to do the best and have the best possible survival for all. Right. And I imagine you want these chicks to be this as close as you can get to the same size as the existing chicks in the nest, right? Exactly. And that is the hardest part. Judging size by drone image, you know, when you're you're really get this image that's really high up. But also osprey chicks, one benefit is that they have asynchronous hatching, which means that the female starts incubating the eggs as soon as she lays the first one. So within a nest of four chicks, every chick is going to be at least at least one day older than the next. So that enables us, I feel like it helps us to do something like this because my chicks didn't have to be the exact age because everyone's going to be a different age within that nest, if that makes sense. Right. And they grow so fast as they're fed. Exactly. They do. So I wanted to avoid, I didn't want obviously a dramatic, dramatic difference in age because the larger, stronger chicks would have had a better rate of survival. So I was really just trying to find a perfect setup where they were similar in age and there weren't too many chicks already in the nest. Now, how did the go-kart nest do overall by the end of the season? Did you see all four of the chicks fledge? You know, I don't know on that nest. We had been droning and then it sort of felt good to me to just let that go and let nature take its course at that point. But I did place the other two chicks into a nest at the Cape Cod Museum of Natural History in Brewster. And that nest was actually on a live cam. So we were able to witness the outcome for that nest. And how did that one go? So one of my chicks unfortunately expired in that nest. And then the one native chick to that nest expired and my remaining chick fledged. It was kind of bittersweet. And I can tell you that a live cam is a mixed blessing for these things. We learned a lot by watching that. But it was unfortunate that the native chick to that nest died. On the other hand, I sometimes feel if I hadn't put chicks in the nest, perhaps those parents wouldn't have fledged any. So at least they did fledge one. And it was one of my chicks. And it felt good just seeing the development, seeing this strong, healthy bird, especially when it first fledged and was returning back to the nest out on forays, you know, with the dad learning how to hunt, presumably, and would return. 
And so I know we can raise healthy osprey chicks with normal development and have them cared for well by foster parents. Well, that is simply amazing. I think chance, <laughs> chances are good that those parents would have ended up with zero chicks. And exactly. he, here you yep. were providing them with a nice, young, healthy chick who had gotten a good start in life. And they were able to see that chick all the way to fledging time. I think that's marvelous. Yes, it was really incredible. And I was so sad that their chick didn't survive. And there are some things that I will do differently going into this year. Because I, I know I'll be getting osprey eggs this year. <laughs> Uh-oh. The word is out. You're good at what you do. So they're going to be banging on your door with osprey chicks <laughs> and eggs. <laughs> you better change your address. <laughs> so on a serious note, though, we should let the listeners know, I mean, all of the things that can go wrong for these osprey chicks. If you had to guesstimate what happened to the native-born chick in the nest, would you say it was maybe a fish hook attached to a piece of fish that he was fed, or did he get tangled up in fishing line? I bring this up because there are just so many things your average citizen can do to prevent fatalities in the nest. Right. So it appears that this chick, from viewers who are watching religiously, was not being fed enough. The native chick to the nest. So it was a failure to thrive. Yes. And it was during okay. this really warm spell. And you better believe that I felt guilty about that thinking, oh my goodness, that chick didn't survive, but mine did. But the people at the museum said to me, goodness, it certainly isn't your fault. They felt that they were new parents and just weren't doing a fully adequate job to begin with. And so we'll see next year what the success is like, but I think it died from being undernourished. Yep. I was just going to say, a lot of people don't realize that First-time bird parents can make the same mistakes that first-time human parents make, which can be overfeeding, underfeeding, not keeping the baby warm enough, keeping the baby too warm. There's just a lot that can go wrong and that these birds learn by experience from year to year until they become experts. So very true. And we can't, you know, I was playing Osprey God there and then I just had to sit back and let Sometimes nature is cruel, but I know we are just doing the best that we can. Right. So now in the remaining time that we have, since we're getting ready to, to wrap things up, what could you tell our listeners about things they can do to help ospreys? I mean, I would say rule number one would be do not try this at home. You're a certified licensed rehabilitator who's working with state and federal regulatory agencies to do this work. This is not something that your average citizen is going to want to try. Right, exactly. Thank you. Yes, I hold a state permit and a federal permit for rehabilitating migratory birds, but I also receive special permission from Massachusetts Division of Fisheries and Wildlife and have 20 years of experience with birds and egg incubation. So don't do this at home. <laughs> So a way that we can all help Osprey is, of course, to make sure you clear your gear. Derelict fishing gear is a huge problem for them. And so if people recycle or dispose of their fishing tackle and fishing line appropriately, that will help all wildlife, of course. And then also here on Cape Cod, we have this, I call this a good problem to have, but we have this dilemma where we don't have enough natural nesting habitat for these birds. They historically nested in 
trees. And now they've taken more to, they nest on platforms that are erected for them or nest on the utility poles. And so I like to encourage any homeowners who live near the water, you probably have appropriate osprey habitat. And so you could put up an osprey platform on your property, which gives these birds another place to breed, an opportunity to breed. That's a great idea. And I would say because there's a built-in human-animal conflict there, humans love to live on waterfront property, be it lakes, rivers, or the ocean, but ospreys do too. So it's about living together in harmony. So I would say, or maybe you could tell us, what if a homeowner comes out, they have an osprey platform on their property, and there's a chick that's fallen out of the nest and is on the ground? They definitely don't want to try putting it back up there themselves. What would they do at that point? Right. So if you do have an osprey nest on your property and there's a chick down on the ground, you would want to contact your closest wildlife rehabilitator so they can come out and assist you also, depending on what state you're in, you could contact your local environmental police or your division of fisheries and wildlife, and they'll direct you to the appropriate person. But you definitely don't want to just pick them up and try to put them back because they could be injured. They should be assessed by a professional. Right. Because when you take them in, you're x-raying them for fractures in the wings, the legs, the chest area. You're going to check their hydration levels. You're going to make sure they're not bleeding out somewhere, make sure they don't have a head injury. There is so much that goes into clearing a bird for being put back in the nest. And it really takes a highly experienced bird rehabilitator like yourself to make that determination about whether they can go back in the nest or do they need several days or weeks even in a rehabilitation setting. Exactly. Thank you for sharing that. That's so very true. And sometimes we find things that people might not even think of, like because osprey hunt fish and have lived their life near water, we do see lead poisoning in these species, which can be from ingesting lead shot, lead sinkers, or from bioaccumulation in the tissues of the fish that they eat. So osprey might look okay, but is not. Right, exactly. So the work you're doing is just so amazing. I mean, I like I said earlier, I'm just blown away. How can people help you? Is there an address people can send donations to help your work? Sure, we would love that. We rely on public donations. And people can visit our website, wildcarecapecod.org, to donate. And our address is also listed on our website. It's 10 Smith Lane in Eastham. Massachusetts. And we don't receive state government or municipal funding for this incredible work we're doing. So all donations are so welcome. Well, Stephanie, I want to thank you so much. The, like I've said before, the work you're doing is so highly specialized. It's like you're a pioneer in avian rehabilitation right now, because it's not something every rehabber does. Incubating from the egg to the chick and then replacing the bird back in a nest. So you're making some scientific breakthroughs, I think. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. I'm so thrilled to do it. And I don't want any osprey eggs or chicks to be displaced, but I am definitely, I'm here for them. <laughs> well, I'm sure a lot of, I, I have a lot of my listeners are active wildlife rehabilitators as well as the normal listening public, but I'm sure the rehabilitators are 
listening very closely to what you're saying, <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, if this does become a standard practice within the field of, of rehabilitation, then more and more rehabbers are going to want to learn from you how you do things. Well, thank you so much. I'm thrilled and happy to help. I'd like to thank Stephanie Ellis for joining us today. Find out more about Stephanie and the work she does by going to wildcarecapecod.org. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.